Now, questions on Genesis 12. We have a question over here. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ish, I've heard people say before that uh, Abram was a pagan and then was called out from being a pagan. Now, I disagree with that thought process, but what are your, your thoughts on that idea? And have you heard that idea that? That because he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, that was a pagan land, and so Abraham was pagan and God rescued him out of it. Okay, was Abraham a pagan, and did God rescue him out of paganism to believe in the gospel? Yeah. Um, I, the answer is yes. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. He was a polytheist. Whichever word we'd like to use. Je, uh, Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then verse 14. 2414. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says it in 2:14 and 15 the gods which your father served beyond the river. The river, most often in the Old Testament, it means the Euphrates River, the Euphrates beyond it. So, and then he mentions Terah, Abraham, and Nahor in 24.2. That's why I, I say, I, I believe, he... Do you think Abraham worshipped those other gods? Well, he, because he says Terah, Abraham, Nahor, does the, does and the they serve. I'm looking at the ESV here. He just refers to Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. Is, is, it, is it Terah and Abraham? Okay, good question. 24 2. From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. Does the ESV say namely, or that is? That lived beyond the river. Terah, uh, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, they served other gods. Okay. In the NASB, they italicize namely. So, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. And who are we talking about by fathers? Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. It says fathers in the plural, from ancient times your fathers, and then it says they served other gods. And the fathers that are named are Terah, Abraham, and Nahor. If he's meaning at least Terah, then it's Likely that Terah, who raised Abraham and Nahor, taught his own sons to worship idols. Of course. And then there was conversion. Yeah. 
Was there something more, or was that? No, that was it. That was it. Okay. Next question. Yes. So it was very interesting um, your explanation about uh, Abraham and what had appeared to me for years was a fear, and maybe uh, that he might lose his life. You know, once they took Sarah from him. Um, but your explanation about how God not holding him accountable for that sin because it was connected with the preservation of life, namely his life, because mm -hmm. I knew the text about the Hebrew midwives and that God had blessed them with houses. And real quick, in the original language, is that houses, uh, is the term for houses uh, synonymous with lineage, with houses, the house of uh, Mudliar, the house of Cortez, or is it physical houses? What is the original? Okay, in the original language, there's one word. It's the word, it, it's called, um, or it said, bayat. Bayat is the word for house, but it could mean house, physical structure for an individual, just any common man. It could mean house for that. It could also mean house of a king, translated palace, and it could also, so a physical structure of the king where he dwells, the palace. It could also be house where God dwells, meaning temple, whether it's the true God or false gods, a temple devoted to God or gods. That house, is, that same word is used for that. And also, it's used in the sense of household. Household. Family? Family. Okay, so it yes. could mean either one or, it, or even both. It, it depends on the context. In which context are we speaking? In that context, what would it be? You know, blessing them with houses, was it physical structures or was it Households, lineage? lineage, households, households, lineage. So they had large families or... or... Yes, because it, um, in, in Exodus 1, verse 21, and it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them, which is a reference to him giving them families and large families. Okay. Mo most likely large, but it says at least he gave them children. That answers my question. Yes. Now, now back to Abraham. Um, so would it be right to say, so it would be, it would probably be wrong to say that he instructed Sarah to say that she was uh, his sister, it would be wrong to say that that was out of fear. It, it was connected simply with his desire for preservation of life, that the promise of God would be fulfilled and brought to manifestation, right? Yes, it, I believe that it was... Devoid of any fear. There's no fear. He just said, no, God has promised that he's going to bless me and bless the nations by me, so my life has to be preserved, therefore I'm going to instruct my wife to say this to Pharaoh and to Ahimelech. Well, I think fear is involved, but it's not a sinful fear. There's a legitimate fear. For example, self-defense, to pr protect one's own body yeah. and those who belong to you in your family, that is a God-given natural <coughs> fear yes. that's good. We, we all have that, and we should have it. Yeah. When people are devoid of that, then there's ruin. Yeah. 
but when people are exercising it, then there is peace and safety. So, and that's what's going on with Abraham. He does have a fear, but it's not an unhealthy, unbelieving kind of fear. It's a fear in order that he might be prodded to do the right thing, yes. to preserve life. Amen. Yeah. And so one more thing uh, along this line. So you said earlier that God does not hold those accountable who um, don't provide all the truth in an effort to preserve, and you said, quote, innocent life. Yes, innocent okay. human life. Okay. Now, Abraham, uh, he did it to preserve his life. Yes. So you would also include innocent life as in Abraham being robed with Christ's righteousness. He stood before the Lord, holy without blame. Because Abraham was a sinner saved by grace like we are, mm -hmm. yet he was trying to preserve his life. Mm -hmm. if, if sins are not uh, held accountable for in defense of innocent life, like unborn babies, you know, what I'm trying to say is it, it's got to be more than just innocent life because Abraham did it to preserve his life, which was a life initially in sin but saved by grace. Well, by innocent, I don't mean that we are devoid of original sin or that we are devoid of actual sin. But by innocent, I mean there is not a specific crime that you have perpetrated okay. against somebody else that deserves the death penalty. I see, I see. Okay. That's what I mean by innocent. Okay. Because in other contexts, nobody's innocent. Right, true. But if we commit a crime <laughs> worthy of death, which is a biblical phrase, yeah. not everyone commits sins or crimes that are worthy of the death penalty by the civil authorities. Right? right? right. So in that sense, we are innocent yeah. uh, until we commit one of those. So that's how I used it. Yes, good. That, that helps me. And one final question, Yes. I hope, is um, so if, let's say hypothetically, Somebody breaks into our house or into our job while we're at work, and some of our coworkers are hiding in a closet, whatever, and we're still out, and we are approached by the person that comes in with a gun, whatever, and we, uh, is, is somebody in that closet, and we lie saying, no, nobody's in that closet. It's a poor illustration, I'm sorry. But we're lying to, to preserve and protect the lives of our coworkers or our family if it was at home. Would that fall under the same category? Yes, I believe that it would be valid to do that, and God would not impugn us with committing a sin against Him. Even though the ones we're trying to, to hide are lost and don't acknowledge the Lord, co-workers, it doesn't matter. We're, it, we're seeking to preserve their lives. We're seeking to preserve their life. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, someone said yeah. here, is Joshua 2 an example of that? Now, not only Joshua 2, which is the two spies, right? But also Numbers chapter 12. I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13, Numbers 13, Joshua chapter 2, and there's other examples of righteous men, prophets of God, kings, who send spies into foreign territory. That means that, in this case, a spy is a national liar. 
And for what purpose? To preserve innocent human life in his own country. So he is a professional, national liar or deceiver. That's what a spy is. And if that is wrong, if that's a sin, then why did Moses in Numbers 13 send out 12 spies into Canaan? Right? Or Joshua chapter 2, why did Joshua send two spies into the city of Jericho? It's not a sin. That's why you, that is permitted by God. So even in modern day law enforcement, an undercover officer who lies in order to... Um, Get to the criminal. Yeah, would yeah. not be... That's not, a, sin. that's not a sin. Yeah, an undercover officer who's trying to break up a, a, a gang or something like that, or find the murderer or the rapist, whatever he's doing, yeah. that he is... He has a valid role in society. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes? Uh, follow up question to your response to Matt's question. Uh, the altar building of Abram in verse 7 and 8, is that just Abram's pagan uh, worship practice? Is that where he knows how to build these altars? Or is he constructed no. some other way? Okay. Okay. Um, in relation to the initial question, mm-hmm. verses seven and eight, when Abraham built altars to the Lord, was this because he had practice as a pagan? No. Of course, he would have seen it, but he's not just <clears throat> repeating what he did in paganism and then kind of uh, sprinkling it or baptizing it, and and then saying, okay, now this is for the Lord, so it's justified. No. Because from the time of Adam and Eve, right. who taught Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. they offered sacrifices. Mm-hmm. There were altars before Abraham's time, true altars to God. Mm-hmm. So at some point, as a prophet of God, he would have known or learned how to build a proper altar. And not to pagan gods, as it says twice, an altar to the Lord. In verse 8, he built an altar to the Lord. Yeah. So he knew how to build a correct altar to the true God for the true purpose. <coughs> yes? The, uh, the covenant that God makes with Abram, uh, um, my, my question is particularly uh, in regards to the idea in the Old Testament of the spiritual descendants. Mm-hmm. Uh, connected it very clearly with Romans 4 and I understand it's exactly Paul's argument um, in the Old Testament uh, in, in this culture and I, I looked into 15 and 17 and 22 it seems to be that the understanding of Abram and the understanding of those early generations that we said I'm going to make of you a great nation he's talking specifically of physical descendants and that the, uh, that, that the idea that it's physical, 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 these actual physical children um, brought in. Yes, he's going to be a blessing to throughout the world. Yes, he's going to be a blessing to all these other nations. And all these other nations are going to come from Abraham, which is more physical stuff. Um, where in the Old Testament do we start seeing, do we see the inklings of, well, really what we meant is that they were have spiritual descendants. I mean, it's, that's, this, this uh, Isaac, these are ideas of uh, these tokens of faith, this physical stuff. Did Paul, 
was that something new that Paul uh, created, or, or, or was he uh, alluding to things that, that the Old Testament uh, patriarch should have understood? It starts, okay, the question, the physical descendants is clear. When did the spiritual descendants aspect of it first uh, get introduced? And in relation to what we have in the text of Scripture in the life of Abraham, the first oracle we have is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And in verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's spiritual. Because it's all the families of the earth. It's the other nations. It's not just the physical descendants. But in, in you, as I showed, this is repeated in 1818, 2218, and then Galatians 3.8 and Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.8 and 3.16. Paul's argument, and also Romans 4, but, but Paul's argument in Galatians was when God said this to Abraham, he did not mean it exclusively in terms of physical descendants. But specifically, and most importantly, he meant a single descendant, physical descendant, who would be the source of blessing for all of the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Right. Not only among Jews, but also from among Gentiles. And we know that because he says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you means not just Abraham, as though Abraham is the dead end street. No, the street goes farther down the road to spiritual descendants. But then how do you get those spiritual descendants? You get them by faith in Christ. That single one who is the supreme spiritual and physical aspect of Abraham's covenant. We actually, uh, just last night, our little family That's spiritual. Yes. Yeah, because he clearly is not saying you will be the father of all the other nations of the world in a physical way. He's not saying that. There's no way he's saying that. So he's talking spiritual right there. Yeah. And the citation you may remember, I cited Psalm 72, 17. Psalm 72, 17 and Jeremiah 4, verse 2. Remember those they do take that phraseology and apply it in a spiritual way to all the nations. Psalm seventy-two, seventeen: May His name, Christ's name, endure forever. May His name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by Him or in Him. Let all nations call Him blessed. And then Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2. Jeremiah 
and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness. Then the nations will bless themselves in him and in him they will glory. As, as Israel is faithful, then they become the spokesmen, the mouthpieces, the messengers to the rest of the nations. The rest of the nations will bless themselves in him and in him, in God, Christ. They will glory. He's already applied it. He applied it when he first said it to Abraham, and then it keeps being repeated throughout the Old Testament. I only referred to these two passages because I had referred to them earlier, but there's many more examples in the Old Testament that show that the promises were not intended to be taken only or mainly or most importantly in a physical way, but mostly in a spiritual way. Yes, yes. And since you allude to that verse, you, you were quoting um, from Isaiah. And he says it a couple of times. So Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. As a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 6. But also it says in similar terms in 49. Isaiah 49. He says, uh, I'll begin at verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength." He says, it is too small or too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved, one of, preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Right. That was Isaiah 49, 3 to 6. So the, the spiritual should always be primary. Yes. In the eternal, when we're reading the Bible, and whatever is physical should support the spiritual. Yes. It's there to support those things. Yes. The, the spiritual should always be primary. The physical is to support the spiritual. But the spiritual is the focus. It's the center. It's supreme. It's most important. It's the weightiest. However we may say it, that is where, our, where we should be thinking. Always. Even in the Old Testament. That which is another false dichotomy you might have heard. The Old Testament is merely, only, exclusively about physical blessings. Peace, progeny, and a pot belly. Peace, no, no enemy's going to torment us, foreign enemies. Progeny, I want a lot of children. They're all about children, lots and lots of children. Uh, and, and then uh, a pot belly. I want a lot of food. I want, I want fertility in the land. I want to eat and drink, I want to be merry, I want to have lots of meat to eat, I want to do all this and live a happy life until God takes me. Right. No, that's not what they were thinking. The, the wicked were thinking that way, the unbelievers were thinking that way, right. but not the believers, not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They weren't thinking that way. Moses, David, they weren't thinking that way. They were thinking about the spiritual. 
So the people think Old Testament's about physical, New Testament is about spiritual. Because no one today lives for hot bellies. Yeah, okay. So, so, so then that shows their hypocrisy. Because really, not only do they say the New Testament is spiritual, they also like to say, we don't need to obey anything in the, in the Old or the New Testament to live a godly life. There's no need. And if you, the moment you say holy, you have pronounced a forbidden word. In their mind, it's a four-letter word. In that you, ne- you should never talk about holiness or that somebody should be holy. Don't do that. If the moment you do that, you're a legalist. You believe in works righteousness. No, no, that's not what it is. Works righteousness is working for salvation to obtain salvation. But holiness is a fruit of salvation. It's something that follows what God's already done inside of us. Uh, Ephesians 2. This is after Pentecost. Ephesians was written after Pentecost. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. That's our salvation. But it doesn't end. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works. After we're saved, we prove that we're saved. We demonstrate we're saved. And that gives us confidence and it shows forth the glory of Christ, His work in us, that He transformed a a dead sinner. He transformed a dead sinner and made him alive. In Christ. Well, it just doesn't make sense that if if all the covenant with Abraham has its fulfillment in Christ, and we know that Christ came to give eternal life, I mean that's the the point of it. That Abraham would have no knowledge of of that. It just it doesn't make any sense. We know that the conclusion is for spiritual things, eternal things, and Abraham's the father of the faith. And he's the one that received the covenant. Mm-hmm. So for him to be ignorant of its true intent would be, I don't know, <coughs> like a slight of hand by God. Okay, for Abraham to be ignorant of its true intention, that is the spiritual component, mm-hmm. faith in Christ. It, it, it seems absurd to believe that. It's absurd. It is absurd. No now, remember I said that it was Christ who appeared to Abraham? Yeah. Okay, now let me show that, since we're on that now. Remember, it says, the Lord appeared to him. It simply says, the Lord. Well, who was that Lord who appeared to him? Look at chapter 17. 17, verse 1. 17, 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. The Lord appeared to him and said to him. Same phrase. Then it says, after this oracle, 22, 17, 22. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Right. When he appeared, he came down to be there in the presence of Abraham. But then when he finished the oracle, it says, when he finished talking with him, when God finished talking with Abraham, God went up from Abraham. He departed. He went up. Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1. 18, 1. Now the Lord appeared to him. 18.1, now the Lord appeared to him. And 18.22, 18.22, 
Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Right. Was still standing before the Lord. 1833, last verse, 1833. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. The Lord departed. He appears and then he departs or goes up or goes away. That's what is happening. Now, remember in chapter 18, when the Lord appeared, Abraham's excited, is he not? He's excited, he goes, he bows down, he says, please come and have something to eat, so on, right? And, And then they do, and then another oracle is delivered to him and Sarah. Okay, John chapter 8, John chapter 8, 8, 56, John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad, which means Abraham saw the day of Christ, and he was glad. He knew who was appearing to him, and he knew the meaning of these words that were delivered to him. These revelations he received, he knew the meaning. That's why he was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Why? Because 2,000 years ago, you see the difference or the distance between Abraham's life and the incarnation of Christ was 2,000 years. Okay? So they know Jesus isn't even 50, and they're saying, How could Jesus say, Abraham knew me? They, that, or that they knew each other. How could you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Right. Not I was, not I had been, or what I have been, but I am. And always will be. And always will be, which is the name that God gave in the burning bush. He said, uh, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. So, the Jews at this point, they know it because verse 59, Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They didn't believe Jesus was God in the flesh. And they thought when he said that he is I am, that he deserves to die because it was worthy of death in the Old Testament, the death penalty for anyone who says and does things like that. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew Jesus was claiming deity to have been the one who, in the deity who appeared, the Lord appeared to Abraham, right? That appeared to Abraham. That's why Abraham was glad to see all that. But it was the Lord that appeared to Abraham. It was. It was. Yes, that's what he's saying here. And also, um, John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 18. 118, no man has seen God at any time. At any time, it says, at any time. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God or the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The Son explains the Father at any time throughout history. 
So it was not the father who appeared to Abraham that went up from Abraham or departed from Abraham or when Abraham was standing before the Lord, it wasn't the father, it was the son, the son of God who did this. Genesis 19.24 makes it explicit as well. Okay, Genesis 19.24 makes it explicit. 19.24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. There are two here called the Lord. The one Lord is there near Sodom and Gomorrah, and He's calling on the one that's in heaven to bring the judgment, fire and brimstone from heaven. <coughs> that's the Lord that was with Abraham. And yes, and that's the Lord. Yeah, nineteen twenty-four. That Lord is the one that was with Abraham. The Lord. So in John 14, where Jesus said, uh, who was it that uh, said, show us the Father? The father yes, Philip. Philip. And he, and, and so many words said, well, he's right here in front of us. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, and Jesus, yeah, it says, Jesus said to him, John 14, 9, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Why are you unsatisfied, or why are you perplexed about seeing God? You should be satisfied. You've seen me. Which, which to him would have been a revelation if he'd have fully understood, if he'd have fully understood what was happening right there, right? Which I don't think... I Phil, don't, I Philip don't, was... Go ahead. go ahead. I can't see that Philip really appreciated the whole concept of what was reality there, you know. Yes. For Philip to say that must mean that he did not have full understanding and full conviction about the reality of Jesus being the Son of the Father and that that should suffice to see the Father through the Son. That's Yeah, that is correct. And that's because Philip just as Peter, James, John, and all the rest of the apostles, they grow in faith. They comprehend some things, but they don't comprehend all things, and neither do we. Right. Neither do we. We understand, and we progress, we gradually increase in not only true knowledge of the gospel, but also living that gospel. It's hard, right? True knowledge takes effort, and true godliness takes effort. Do uh, people that embrace oneness theology use that verse to say that the Father is Jesus and Jesus is the Father? Yes. Yes, they, they use this oneness theology. It's called oneness theology, oneness Pentecostalism, Jesus only. And many times their churches are called apostolic churches. Which, which is an oxymoron because, and a contradiction because they say they are apostolic, but they deny what the apostles say about God. Yeah. Okay. So they teach that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they, use, they misuse John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus does not mean that He is the Father, 
Right. He's saying, if you want to understand or comprehend the glory of the Father, see it in me. Yes. That's what his, what his point is. Of course. But he's not saying that he is the Father, nor is he saying he is the Spirit. But they believe that the Father is the Creator, and he is the God of the Old Testament. They believe that the Son is the Redeemer, and he is God in the New Testament until Pentecost. And then from the day of Pentecost until now, Jesus is the Spirit. He's not the Son. He's not even the Father. And he's not the Son either. He's the Spirit. So that's their theology. The one who dwells within us, it, we can call him Jesus the Spirit, the Spirit of God. When Paul says, they say, when Paul says great is the mystery of godliness, mm -hmm. he's talking about the wonder of the triune God, yes? The, the, yeah, he who was revealed in the, the flesh. God was revealed in the flesh. Yeah. 1 Timothy 3.16. Right. But isn't that what Paul is trying to express? The wonder, the incom incomprehensible nature of the truth concerning the Trinity? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct in persons, yet one in essence. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's what he's saying. It, which he, he also says was vindicated in the Spirit, or by the Spirit. So he's mentioning all three persons of the Trinity right there in one verse. Um, so, so actually, two, two of them in, in one verse. If we decide as far as God, the Father, the Son, if we decide we absolutely have to understand that fully before we believe it, we're in trouble. Yes. We're in error right there. Just yes. like those people you're saying, they, they've already made an error. Yes. If we say that we have to understand the Trinity fully before we can believe it, then we are in error. We're in danger. No not, not only are we in danger on that doctrine, but we could say the same about everything else. Yeah. Everything else the Bible says. Do we all, does anybody understand creation fully? No. Does anybody understand his own person correctly, uh, fully? Do we understand our own selves fully? No. Electricity? And then, then there's physical things. Do we understand electricity? Do we understand our cell phones? Do we understand our automobiles? No. We understand them to the extent that they are helpful to us, that we want them to be helpful to us. And then we learn about them more and more as time passes, right? We learn about our phones more and more. We understand about automobiles, the, the, especially if there are breakdowns, mechanical problems. We will understand, oh, okay, that part is called the exhaust manifold. And this other thing is called the uh, exhaust pipe or whatever. We learn these words after some time. We don't know everything initially. But we still use the car. We still use the phone. We still believe in what the Bible says. Yes. But it's dangerous to deny what the Bible says. The moment we deny it, when it's presented to us right in front of our face, right. minimally we are insane. Because insane people deny reality. Right? And uh, maximally we are insidious. Because... The truth is told to us, and yet we reject it. We turn away from it because we think we're better than what we just heard. Right. What we're doing is telling God he's a liar. We're telling God he's a liar. Exactly.
So we shouldn't ever do that. If, if the Bible says it, it's true. Right. Whether we understand it fully or not. Right. We understand it enough to believe that we should believe it. The old saying goes, God said it whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> God said it whether you like it or not. That goes where uh, the blind man asked Christ, and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right. Yes. yes. Um, that should be our prayer. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes. Um, it, it was actually, um, the blind man said, Lord, who is he that I may believe? That's what the blind man said in John 9. But in Mark 9, 24, it was the boy's father who said, I do believe, help my unbelief. That's right. So he had sufficient enough belief. Yes. But he wanted more. He wanted more. And that's what it has to be. Someone has to have a sufficient enough understanding of the gospel to be saved. Yes. But then we're going to continue growing in that. Yes. But we can't deny certain aspects of it and just say, well, we don't understand and believe. But we just have a weak faith. Correct. Which is what people want to do. They want to deny and repudiate what the Bible says and then just accredit it to immaturity or lack of understanding. It's difficult to understand. When they fully understand the concept, they just don't like it. Correct. And so they reject it. Yeah, we can't do that. We can't do that. Yeah, we, we have to have sufficient understanding, and that's not very difficult. Nope. For most of us, it's not very difficult to have sufficient understanding, and then we grow in our understanding from that point. And that sufficient understanding saves us and equips us to grow in godliness. That's what we need to do. But people don't like to do that because they want another way. So they'll say, the Bible's unclear. It's not that it's unclear on basic things. It's not unclear. <coughs> but they'll label it as unclear so that they can walk away and do their own thing. We should not do that. That's dangerous. So when he says, I believe would help my unbelief, was he converted? I forget exactly how the text reads. But was he converted when he said, Lord, I believe that he wanted that belief and faith increased, and that was his prayer, increase the faith that you've already blessed me with? I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Yes, he's wanting more faith. Yeah. He's wanting more faith. More faith. Mark 9, 24. Okay, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've taught us. We pray that we'll be built up in this truth, we'll be built up in our Christian life, and we'll help, uh, that you'll help us to live for your kingdom. Help us not to live for ourselves, but for you, uh, to live for Christ who died and rose again on our behalf. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.